Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Well, what a treat to be back here uh, at USC, fight on, and um, hosting the last, I think the best panel, because we're going to get into some fun and very important stuff here. Let me introduce the guests. Uh, You heard my name, Jonathan Martin. I write a column for Politico. Hope you'll read it. Let's start with Nick furthest down. Nick Troiano is a civic entrepreneur based in Denver, Colorado, and he serves as the executive director of Unite America, which is a nonpartisan organization dedicated to improving government functionality and representation. With a decade of leadership experience and political reform, he co-founded Americans Elect in 2010. Nick first gained national attention as the youngest and most competitive independent House candidate in the country in 2014. He's a sought-after speaker on political and fiscal reform, and most importantly, he is the author of this forthcoming book, which you should at your earliest opportunity, go online and pre-order a copy of because it comes out in March. Moved up to February 27th. It moved up. It's that hot, folks. <laughs> it's just that hot. They're flying off the Amazon shelves. Jeff Bezos is like working overtime, keeping this thing uh, in stock. So order your copy today, The Primary Solution. Nick Troiano, The Primary Solution. Kimberly Wyman is a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center and a renowned leader in election administration. She served as the Washington Secretary of State. Now, being from Washington, D.C., I would say Washington State. But, of course, folks in the West Coast wouldn't say Washington State. Unnecessary. They know the Washington you're referring to is the state, uh, not that that swampy place back east. Serving as Washington Secretary of State for almost a decade, she was the second GOP woman elected statewide in the state's history. She was appointed by President Biden as Senior Election Security Advisor at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, Kim began her 30-year career in elections as the Thurston County Elections Director and later served as Thurston County Auditor. Here we are in Southern California, and Kim has ties to SoCal. She's a graduate of Cal State Long Beach and holds a master's uh, in public administration from Troy State University. And she, book plug, is the co-author of Elections 2020 controlling chaos. Nick, I want to start with you because you have a book coming out. You and I have full, dis- full disclosure. We've met before. We've talked about this. I mean, we, we had a really important couple of panels today uh, about the here and now, about what's happening in American politics. But this, I think, is the most important panel because we're talking about the structural challenges of American politics. And, you know, people in this room follow the news closely. You're engaged. You, you care about local politics. Hopefully you watch Alex uh, every night. Uh, uh, on Fox, and hopefully you're, you're following national politics just as closely. But I think one of the things that people don't appreciate is the real challenge out there is the kind of people who are now running for office, being elected to office, and who are being reelected to office. And that has really changed dramatically, and it's changed in large part because of structural incentives and challenges. Talk about that for for a minute and explain why that has become such a sort of um, uh, incredibly urgent challenge. Yeah. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks to USC. Honored to share the stage with you, Jonathan, and Secretary Wyman, who is a personal hero for your leadership on election administration in challenging times. By way of answering your question, the last time I was here at USC was a little over a decade ago. 
I was going across the country in a van as part of a student advocacy nonprofit I was running at the time. It was called the Can Kicks Back. And we were trying to get young people to tell Washington, D.C., that is, to stop kicking the can down the road on our large fiscal challenges as a country. And that was unsuccessful. Despite college activations, we brought a mascot named American around, had students sign cans, brought them to leaders in Washington. But what I learned through that experience was that whether it's the debt or climate or education, immigration, name your issue, it's not a matter of having the right salute policy solution. It's the fact that those in Washington do not have an incentive to work together to actually solve the problem. We don't lack good ideas. We have bad incentives. And so that's what sent me down this yeah. path in the decades since to examine, well, what are those incentives? What is it about our election structure that can change them? And the good news out of a day of some dismal outlook on democracy and all the challenges that we were facing is that when we're looking at the challenge of the structural, it's entirely fixable. This is a problem that we can fix. And this is a problem that is being fixed by states all around the country because the constitution says, uh, every state can determine the time, place, and manner of its elections. And so when we would talk about some of these election reform ideas, we have the power. Uh, and it's now, now is the time that we use that power and agency to address this problem in a, in a systemic way. Because, uh, if I have one message that I hope people take away, the biggest challenge facing our democracy right now is not who we elect. It is how yeah. we elect. It's how. And, and the primaries have taken on so much power now because so much of our country is now divided between red and blue that the primaries can't amount to election in large swaths of the country. You guys know this. There's nothing in the Constitution about primaries or political parties. There's no constitutional mandate to even have a primary because there's nothing in there about parties at all. This is entirely a creation of, of, of fairly modern times. And and your idea, let's, let's not bury the lead, sure. nonpartisan primaries, ranked choice voting, and then some level of gerrymandering reform. So you draw lines for House and state legislative districts with a sort of fairer map to create more competitive elections. Those are kind of the big three, fair to say? They are. And yeah. And Secretary Wyoming, you have nonpartisan elections in Washington State. We do. In primaries. How is that working? Have you seen on the ground a change in the kind of person running and the kind of person successfully being elected? Well, Washington is very unique on multiple levels. One, we've been a vote by mail state and full disclosure, I no longer am secretary of state in Washington and I might not be a resident there either, but I'm happy to talk about, uh, about the state. So, uh, Washington state does not register by party. And as a result, and I think that structurally is one of the biggest things that's so different about Washington is you really have a weak party state yeah. as a result because you can't get a list of all the registered Democrats and all the registered Republicans. Now, the challenge with that is that the legislature really likes having partisan elections and partisan offices like county auditor, county treasurer, et cetera, because then they can tell how a county breaks politically in the election results. So uh, Washington has a top two primary. Uh, they are also a vote by mail state. So that kind of cascading effect that you all here in California have copied, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, that was our, our lead. Uh, California had a wonderful lawsuit back in the mid-1990s that uh, changed the primary structure to a, a top-two model that they modeled after our state. But um, but I say this because what happens is, uh, for the voters' experience, very good. They always have 
all the candidates listed in the primary, regardless of party. They can jump all over the ballot in a partisan election and vote for a Democrat in one, a Republican in another, Libertarian in a third, whatever they want. And then the top two advance regardless of party. Now, I mention that because the nonpartisan offices are the same. And so in Washington state, that's really most of the municipal type positions, mayors, council members, school board, that type of thing. But in charter counties, those counties and cities have um, nonpartisan offices for the higher ranking offices like county exec or mayor of the county, county council positions. And it's significant because these are cities like Seattle. No. where it's a very political environment, very left now uh, of center um, over time. But I think that's just the nature of, of high population cities. And so what we've seen as a result is that the campaigns are a little bit more moderate. Yeah. Uh, the campaign, the candidates have to appeal to the whole swath of, yes. of people. So even though they're nonpartisan in Seattle, I guarantee you people know who the Democratic sure. candidate and Republican yeah. candidate are. Um, they're nonpartisan, but it does change the way they campaign. Uh-huh. Dramatically. Well, I can just tell you from covering politics, this all may sound dry and we're into the afternoon, I know, but I cannot underline how vital this matter is because spending a lot of time in the U.S. Capitol, spending a lot of time on the campaign trail, I see the kind of people who are choosing to run for office. I see the reasons why. I see who's elected. And I also see who chooses not to run for re-election, who chooses to retire or quit or leave uh, politics because they're frustrated, burned out, disappointed. This is an acute problem in the U.S. House, especially. The House is a great institution. Uh, historically, obviously in the constitution, it, it's, uh, every tax bill comes from the Ways and Means Committee. The speaker is second in line for the presidency. The House is a shadow of what it used to be today because the quality of members in both parties has diminished dramatically and too many members of the House uh, leave because they're frustrated there. It happens all the time. You're seeing an exodus now to, to the exodus because, uh, they're frustrated with it, the sort of dysfunction there. And a lot of that stems from the fact that 80% of the members of the House, their entire life, they wake up every day thinking about either their primary on the left, if they're a Democrat, or the primary on the right, if they're a Republican. That's what they are, are concerned about. They, they orient their public lives around surviving a primary every two years because the general election's irrelevant in their districts. That's a loaded question, but it leads me, or a, a loaded pretext to a question. But what I want to ask is, so we have ranked choice elections, gerrymandering reform, and what's the third one? Nonpartisan. Nonpartisan. How do you rank those? Well, to start with you, Secretary Wyman, those are obviously the three most popular reforms. If you could wave a wand right now, which of those three would you enact immediately? Primary reform. It's, it's close because... And, and I don't want to steal Nick Thunder because he's the one who did all the research, yeah. but the vast majority of people in this country who are elected to public office, certainly to Congress, but also in state legislatures, are determined in the primary. And when you have a state that has a closed or open primary where you're limiting access to, to that participation, you dramatically are shrinking the number of voters who are actually selecting the people who are going to go and serve and represent the entire district or the entire you know state. And that's problematic. And that's where we're seeing this terrible combination of, of safe districts. You know, I only have to worry about my side of the aisle and I just have to worry about getting primaried. Yeah. It really narrows your focus. Um, and I think it's probably of the three, the quickest, easiest lift. Not that it's going to be an easy lift, but I think of the three, it's easy. Nick, what say you? Uh, happen to agree. Uh, you know, <laughs> Why? 
if there's not just one thing that we can do, there's not one silver bullet, but we have limited time and resources. So the question is like, would we prioritize? And the reasons why uh, abolishing party primaries, it tops the list for me is that it's the biggest solvable problem in our political system today. It's the biggest because it has the greatest influence on the incentives of our leaders. You know, when I was a, a freshman studying government, you know, we learned about David Mayhew, who said that Congress, members of Congress are single-minded seekers of re-election. That was his big theory in the 1970s. Well, it turns out to be true. And it turns out to get re-elected, the first thing you have to worry about is whether or not you make it through your partisan primary. In 83% of our districts today, that is the only election of consequence. And when you face that primary, you know, you face the number of voters that look like before all of you filled into the center row. That's what a low turnout partisan primary looked at. It's the most extreme, most ideological voters that wind up participating. So we ran the numbers looking at 2022. We found that only about 8% of eligible voters nationally cast ballots in the primaries that determined 83% of our elections. So we have a unrepresentative House of Representatives. And then we expect those people to go there and actually get things done, right? It's pure folly to, to reward behavior that leads to outcomes that are undesirable. So we can shake our fists at the politicians all day long, but they are rational actors within this system. So that's why it's the biggest problem. The reason why it's a solvable problem is what I referenced before, is that every state can change these rules. In half the states, you have a ballot initiative process, which is how this reform happened in Washington and California and in Alaska. And in other states, you have uh, the legislatures, which can change these rules. And states like Maine, for example, recently opened their primaries. Uh, so at least independents can be allowed to vote. So primary reform is the biggest solvable problem that I think exists in our uh, democracy today. In, in most of our lifetime, we've gotten used to primaries being the vehicle with, with our presidential nominees are elected. But as some of the folks in this room know, that's a result of the Democrats' 1968 election in which Hubert Humphrey was, was nominated as his, as his party's standard bearer after really not competing in, in much of the primary. And party bosses uh, coronated him in Chicago. There was obviously a complete disaster at Chicago at the convention. By the way, this summer's convention in Chicago. Um, um and there was a massive reform. You guys know the history here in 72. And from then on, Democrats moved to primaries and Republicans followed suit. I raise all that because this is in, you know, the lifetime of a lot of folks in this room where we didn't have primaries for presidential nominations. So I'll put this out there. And this is a provocation. Was the smoke filled room so bad after all? And by that, I mean, were we really that bad off when party bosses who were single-minded, focused on elections and winning and being staying in power, retaining their power, retaining, yes, their, their patronage power, but they were focused on winning in the general election? Was it so bad when they chose the party's nominee instead of making it more small-D Democratic? Well, I have a, a more current example okay. that happened in Washington State. So in 1988, the uh, Republican Party in Washington State nominated Pat Robertson. And for those of sure. you not old enough to remember that election, uh, he was a very conservative uh, Christian coalition, I believe, uh, candidate. Didn't have a prayer of winning. As it were. Uh, and uh, they were the only delegation on the floor of the RNC that yeah. year to nominate him. 
It was very embarrassing. And out of, out of that came a statewide initiative that created the presidential primary. So in 1992, Washington voters for the first time in their lives, many of them had to publicly declare that they were a Democrat or a Republican in order to participate in the primary. And that was, of course, to make sure that we didn't trample on uh, their uh, constitutional right of association. Now, I got to work my first election that year, and um, I was shocked because I had lived in California where you re- register by party. I didn't think it was a big deal. And I was called, let's see, a communist. I was accused of denying them their right to be able to vote in an election, and I tried to explain what a primary was, and that was a really waste of my time. But the, the long story short... We went from caucus participation, which was about 3% for each party, to 30%. Still very low turnout by Washington standards, but it was 10 times the turnout of caucus, much more representative. And uh, what was really interesting in the years that followed, um, we tried a bunch of different things from unaffiliated ballots uh, to, you know, just a, basically a closed primary. Yeah. And what ended up happening was the Republican Party would allocate half of their delegates by by primary half by caucus. Hmm. So I still had that party control at the caucus level, or they think they have control. And then you had uh, the Democratic Party that would not use any result for the primary at all. Now, they took the list of voters so they could identify the D's and R's, but they would never use it right up until 2016. And I was uh, up for re-election. It was a blistering re-elect as Secretary of State. And I was advocating for, uh, you know, really trying to get the parties to commit to um, using the results and bringing back the unaffiliated ballot, to which the Democratic uh, leaders had a bunch of hearings and made me look like I was, you know, crazy. And they went ahead and did the same old, same old. Well, you remember in 2016, Hillary Clinton had a little opponent named Bernie Sanders. Right. And so for the first time, the Democratic Party was schooled in the difference between a caucus and a primary. Yes. Because as you can imagine, Bernie Sanders won the caucus because a bunch of students got really organized and were really smart and overran the caucus. And then Hillary Clinton, of course, wiped up in the primary and they couldn't in their first round of voting on the floor of the DNC convention. They couldn't vote for Hillary because they were bound to Bernie Sanders. So I say all of that because exactly what Nick said, how you vote matters. But at the same time, we have to keep advocating for primaries that are more inclusive, that allow more people to participate. And we can still we can still help the parties have their right. My provocation is about being less inclusive and less democratic because (laughs) at least in the primary, right? I mean, again, I'm being provocative here, Nick. But you think that that the problem isn't too much democracy. You think the problem is there's not enough democracy that you should have more primary participation. That that yes, John Q. Public should decide the nominees for the fall election, not a party boss, but that it should be more John Q. Publix, right? Yeah, I think there's a distinction between how participatory elections are and how representative they are. Right. You can have a very participatory, unrepresentative election. You can also have a very low participatory, but more representative process. Right. And today we have the worst of both worlds. We have a low participatory, low representative process. You know, you go back 100 years when these primaries were first invented. Yes. Uh, this was the progressive the era. Reformers of the era. Reformers of the era. And they actually, they, I think they modeled what we should be doing in our own time, which is to say there was corruption in government. There was, in, you know, high income inequality. There was dissatisfaction. Right here in California, Hiram Johnson, yeah. And what they said was instead of the sort of corruption of the party bosses getting to pick, the people should have a yes. voice. 
they identified the right problem. I think history has proven in the modern context, it was the wrong solution in the sense that it did not democratize our elections. What it replaced was one set of elites, which you had your party bosses, with a new set of elites, which today is the ideological activists and the special interests that have disproportionate power over our primary system. And who does our primaries lock out the most? The largest and fastest growing segment of our electorate, which is independent voters. 27 million independent voters this election year will be silenced in the party primary process for president and for Congress. And who does that disproportionately affect? Veterans, most of whom 3x of the number of veterans are independent versus registered with the party. It's part of the culture uh, of that community and young people. So we're telling people who fought for our country, you can't have a vote. And we're telling people who are the future of our country, you can't have a vote. And we're, we wonder why we end up in so many elections with a choice that most of us, you know, aren't too satisfied. It's a with. good pitch. That's a good PowerPoint. I like that. That's, um, <laughs> it's very compelling. But you guys, let's talk about impediments for a minute. Because, Secretary, you, you, you were Republican. You were Republican. Nick, you, you obviously um, ran as an independent, but uh, some of your best friends are Republicans, I'm sure. It, you guys know that this is a big challenge, that the Republican Party, certainly today's party, sees this as a Trojan horse to get what they would call rhinos uh, into general elections, right? And I wasn't casting any aspersions. Um, but, you know, Alaska being the most obvious example of this, right, where Lisa Murkowski is a U.S. senator today, still, in part because of their ranked choice primary system, right? She she survived a primary threat because of the nature of how they nominate their their candidates. What do you say to Republicans who believe that this is some nefarious scheme to you, you know dilute their their nominees? The first thing I would say is look at the results of the twenty twenty two election. That was a winnable contest for the Republican Party. They could have control of the Senate today. What happened was in states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh, and elsewhere. They wound up nominating candidates to the party primary system that were too extreme for the general election electorate. If there's a party that should be championing these reforms out of entirely self-interest, you know, it ought to be the Republican Party today. And what's interesting is that in some states, including in Alaska, Republicans were the original champions of these ideas. The first ballot initiative for ranked choice voting in Alaska was championed by Republicans who were upset that the state elected a Democratic governor with less than a majority of the vote. So... I don't buy a lot of the, you know, partisan reflexivity to opposition to these issues. I think it's actually in both parties' interest because they've lost control over who their standard bearers are for their, for their parties now and their platforms. Uh, and so I think the opposition that we're seeing is sort of not grounded uh, on the facts. It is a reaction to a couple select races that we've seen in Maine and Alaska where polarizing Republicans, including Sarah Palin yeah. uh, in Alaska, wound up not being able to win a majority of the votes. The right takeaway yeah. is let's put up candidates who have broader appeal under this system that rewards people who have broader appeal not to fight the reforms themselves. Kim, jump in there if you want. Oh, I, I was just going to say that um, having been a Republican in a very blue state and and having to keep my base happy and then appeal to enough moderate voters, uh, middle voters that, that I could win election. You know, for me, it always came down to, as Secretary of State, I would not weigh in on social issues. Drove my opponents absolutely nuts. I wouldn't publicly say where I stood on it. And it was a core belief I had from being an election director. I could have an initiative on the ballot and it could be a social issue. Probably will be gay marriage, guns, abortion. And I can't afford people to know 
what my stand on that issue is because it taints the way they think I do my job. Now, I say that because people always ask me, well, how did you win in such a blue state? I forced my opponents to compete on resume. And I think as we look at hearing some of the panels earlier today, that's the biggest challenge, I think, for Republicans across the country is that, that the Dobbs decision, I don't think they get it still. When Kansas is saying, yes, we're going to, we're going to make some changes here and we're not in line with the outcome of that Supreme Court decision, um, it's an indicator and they're not waking up. And I can tell you that that is an issue that Democrats effectively in my state used against Republican candidates because it doesn't matter what the answer is. If you're choice, you lose the middle. If you are life, you lose the base. And mathematically, you can't win. And it's amazing to me with no matter what primary general system we're talking about, candidates don't get that piece. So it's multi-layered. It's not just a structural piece, but structural is a real important part. Nick, you make an important, I I, um, I think, argument for why Republicans should get behind this. Better candidates, better chance for success, because obviously power does ultimately uh, win the day when you're talking about politics. But I want to stay on power for a minute because it does seem like one of the, the, the other impediments to these reforms is the matter of power. Because a lot of these reforms would have to, at least in some states, be approved by state legislatures, governors. And well, boy, they'd have to limit some of their own power, right? If you like the current system because you're surviving politically or thriving politically, what would drive you as a politician to enact some of these reforms? Yeah, that's a great point. And doing some research for the book, what I really appreciated was that when the direct primary came to be a little over 100 years ago, it wasn't just the outside agitator saying the people deserve a vote. It was recognition within both major parties that the current system wasn't working for them. There was a lot of factualization within the parties. There was a lot of uh, discord and division. And so they also thought that uh, moving to a new kind of process would solve those problems. So I think it's important for even for a reform movement that's looking to disrupt a status quo that isn't working to meet the policies and in some case politicians where they are. What are the problems that they're experiencing? There's a campaign in the state where I'm from in Pennsylvania to open the state's primary. So a million independent voters who can't vote there. And the argument for Republicans is you can stop losing <laughs> statewide if you if you start nominating more mainstream candidates. Right. And the argument of Democrats is this is the future voters that you right. can start courting at the primary level, you know, before the general election. You know, my parents are still independents in, in Pennsylvania and had a disheartening experience some years ago of showing up to the polling place only to be turned away. Yeah. You think about that in our country right now. And when I was talking to my dad before this last election, we were talking about, you know, who we might support in the general election. They're classic kind of swing voters. And he told me, I'm not voting. And I thought, you're not voting? What do you mean? Do you know what I do? And he said, uh, well, I couldn't participate in the primary. I don't like any of these candidates. And I have a feeling there's a lot of people uh, like my dad out there who feel just awfully disenfranchised by the system and that the parties would do well to invite in. Unfortunately, I think that both parties are okay being, you know, 51% of a declining market share in this political duopoly that we have. And it might take some new competition coming into the system to actually sort of shake them awake on this issue. Yeah, I mean, you can speak to Washington State Republicans who certainly in some quarters would prefer to lose statewide elections than dilute their product. Uh, they, they haven't won a Senate race there in decades. Um, the governor's race will be a fascinating test this year when you've got potentially um, uh, a strong candidate uh, running Dave Riker for Republicans. But I mean, part of the challenge here is is that 
you do have activists who would rather be pure than than who would win. And look no further than recent history in the Republican Party. The you know you know obviously lost in twenty eighteen, lost uh, the presidency in the Senate in twenty twenty. Uh, you know, blow a really promising election in twenty twenty two. It doesn't seem to have penetrated that you have to be more pragmatic about your your nominees. I guess I'm saying, what, what's it going to take? Because defeat used to be the cure, right? I mean, Democrats lost 80, 84, 88 by big margins until Clinton finally came along and sort of reoriented the party toward the political center. Republicans have in some ways been cursed by close elections, right? By that, I mean, it's hard to have a reformation if you're losing closely or if you don't believe you lost at all, right? Yeah, I, I think that it, it's a it kind of is multi-layered and it's not just the, the structural primary that's the issue. I mean, social media and fundraising mm-hmm. is now on a different level than it was when I entered politics 20 years ago um, because you now have candidates who are incentivized because of their safe district, yeah. because they, you know, win on both sides. I, I can be very, I always am bipartisan how I talk. So your very extreme right and left candidates are winning elections. And now they don't have to rely on the big traditional fundraising sources that they would normally have. They're big donors. And these are the, the organizations that could kind of keep them in check. You got to tell the line on this bill. We need to get it across the finish line. We need your vote. There's this group that now knows, wait a minute, if I don't toe the line, I'm going to get a bunch of press. I'm going to be able to go on social media and get my my troops across the country for my little congressional district, and they're going to send me millions of dollars. I no longer need the machine, and I think that's one of the things that's the biggest challenge, and that's another structural reform is campaign finance. Yeah, the the carrots (laughs) and the sticks of political leaders have dramatically declined in the era of social media and the nationalization of politics because what's Kevin McCarthy going to do to Matt Gates? He has no recourse. Gates is not going to lack for money. So what can you do, right? There's there's not a lot, right? Let's talk about gerrymandering for for a minute because it does seem like that is one of the ways to get more competitive house elections is is gerrymandering uh reform. At the same time we're so sorted now ideologically in this country uh, by by demography that, that even gerrymandering reform doesn't seem to be the kind of magic wand that it would have certainly 40 or 50 years ago. But talk for a minute about what, what that can do and sort of what you see in states that have done that. I guess Iowa um, has long had yep. um, j- judges draw draw maps. Yeah, I mean, I see I think gerrymandering has become a lot more of an acute issue that just offends our sensibilities, right? When we see the maps that sort of look like an ink, ink blot on paper, we know something is wrong. Something is being manipulated. The politicians are rigging the system. And so that's why I think yeah. this issue has caught on more than other structural issues is because there's just an innate sense of outrage over this. And some states have moved to fix this. In Colorado, the state where you know America is now headquartered, uh, we became one of the s- several states that have replaced the process of the legislature drawing the districts with an independent commission, right. uh, sort of like here in California, right, where you take it sort of out of the self-interested politicians and in the hands of people that are hopefully more putting the sort of public interests first and using established criteria. The challenge with this is that uh, the ceiling on the impact, I think, is quite low, in part mm-hmm. because when you look at the number of competitive seats that are no longer competitive for Congress, 
over the last 20 years, a majority of those seats were a result of our own geographic sorting, yeah. right? Uh, more conservatives living in rural areas, more progressive voters living in more urban areas. So you'd almost have to start gerrymandering to create competitive districts, then eliminating gerrymandering to increase them. And that is why I sobering attacking this from the primary angle is more impactful because even if you have a safe seat, even if it is a district that leans heavily Republican or Democrat, you can have multiple candidates advance from the primary to the general election, uh, like Alaska does, where you have the top four move on. And so you can have, say, three Republicans and one Democrat or vice versa and give voters a choice. You can choose your flavor of Republican or Democrat, even if you don't, even if you're not from that party. So in spite of our geographical sorting, if we have general elections with multiple candidates, we sort of get around that challenge. Yeah. Because, you know, Kim, you know, obviously Washington State, the, the, you know, King County where Seattle is, they're going to elect a Democratic member of Congress, no matter how you slice the county, unless you want to do what they can say, which is draw a kind of absurd line through the sort of, you know, center of the state. So there's, there's not a lot you can do when we're kind of living in our own little silos geographically. But again, I think that's one of the strengths of like a top two model. And I know California has us too, because you're absolutely right. Downtown Seattle, you're never going to elect a Republican. Right. Eastern Washington, there are places you're never going to elect a Democrat. But a choice between a moderate and a progressive or a moderate and a conservative is more of a choice for those voters. And having two of the same party advance, which political parties, by the way, hate. Yes. I cannot tell you how much. Well, we had almost a 20-year battle in Washington State over our primary. And um, I can tell you the parties hate it, but it's more of a choice for the voters. Um, and that's why I like to advocate them. Um, I want to turn to question, but first I want to talk about uh, a fun topic, which is political mischief making, because I think we're about to see some here in California, and it gets to what we're talking about today, which is these top two primaries. As most of you know, the Senate race to succeed Dianne Feinstein uh, is taking place right now. The first round of voting, not the primary, but the first round of voting is in March. Well, Adam Schiff has got more money than the, the, the USC endowment, probably, which is saying a lot. I'm exaggerating, but he has a lot of money. Okay. Adam Schiff is obviously going to promote himself, but I'm sure Adam Schiff's allies would love to see promotion of Steve Garvey, the former baseball player, who's a Republican, who the Adam Schiff forces know that if it's t- Adam Schiff and Steve Garvey who are going to the general election this fall as the top two candidates, well, it's not much of a general election because it's California and it's almost certain that California is not going to elect. A Republican senator, even one who had good years for the Padres, right? So how do you guys look at that? Is that a feature of the system, a bug of the top two system? Is that part of the reform? Is it a challenge to reform? Is it just how politics is played? Um, because it, it does seem not totally keeping in the spirit with uh, a clean reform type movement where you're trying to help the other party for sort of crassly political reasons, right? Yeah. So I would say first, there's no perfect system, uh, right? There's the Nobel Prize winner, Ken Arrow, who developed in 1950 something called the impossibility theorem, which it says right there in the name, there is, there is not possibly a voting system that can serve every objective that you would want to see in a voting system. It's just how much better can we do than the status quo? And let's not pretend the status quo is any good because the same kind of gaming that you're kind of talking about plays out all of the time. Sure. You look at Montana, for example, Republicans putting forward Green Party yep. candidates or Democrats putting forward Libertarians to split the vote, for example. Or in primaries where we saw last cycle Democrats spending 
over $50 million to prop up election deniers in primary so they would, you know, run against a more extreme candidate in the general. The current system is not great. Now, does top two have a, a limitation with regard of how the vote splitting can work in the primary that may yeah. end up? Sure, it does. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's one of the reasons why when Alaska came to reform its system in 2020, it took one step forward, which is to say, let's not only advance two to the general election, let's advance four. Interesting. So it becomes less possible to game in that. Yeah, way. Interesting. Would you prefer California to have a, have a top four? Absolutely. I think yeah. it would give voters, you know, more choice and have more representative outcomes. Please. I, I would though add that political parties, again, they kind of hate anything that results in two of their candidates advancing to the general yeah. because they don't want to spend money yes. in the general election on a race. They're going to win yes. from a party standpoint. They don't want to talk about it, but I can tell you that for a fact. And yes. so that is the thing they always talk about. Well, party rating. They're going to go over. They already know who the nominee on this side is. So they're going to raid in the top two. They're not incentivized because. You only have one vote, and um, I can tell you, I had a had a seven way primary in my first statewide run, and they luckily for me, the Democrats didn't quite understand that putting three candidates in against me was bad because I walk into the primary or general because I get thirty percent of the, yeah. the vote right away. But we had a lieutenant governor's race uh, four years ago, maybe more. That um, it was a I don't know, like eleven way field, yeah. and everybody said the same thing. You know, go over and vote for the weak, whatever Republican. Well, it turned out the two Democrats went, and it was truly a choice for voters. Now, yeah. arguably, Washington is now a blue state like California. I think some still hold out hope, yeah. but at the end of the day, you had a moderate Democrat and a progressive yeah. Democrat, and so Republicans hated it. And the Democrats hated it. So yeah. I think the system must be working. But you're right, Kim, though, that uh, part of the challenge is the parties would hate the final four because that would create it, it expose internal fissures, make them spend more money than they want to just extend the drama well into the fall. And, you know, I, I've joked about this, but if, if it is Adam Schiff and Steve Garvey starting in March, the only interesting drama, sorry, Alex Michelson here, the only interesting drama left in California is who gets more of Adam Schiff's money? Nancy Pelosi for her House candidates or Chuck Schumer for Senate candidates, right? That's the competition in California is who can get Schiff's money because he doesn't need it against Steve Garvey. If Steve Garvey is listening out there, I am never having lunch uh, with the Padres again uh, because I am I am down on Steve Garvey's prospects. We hear about violence all the time in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's take a few questions here from the audience. The aforementioned Alex Michelson. Uh, the prerogative here of the local media. Wow, yes. First question. I will. Uh, you guys all should watch Alex, by the way. If you thank don't. you. And, and read Jonathan's column. It's thank the best you. column in the country. Thank you. Since I know so much about California, I don't know that much about some of these other states, and as a lot of other people here do. So can you give us a sort of a state of the rest of the country? Um, where is your message working? Are there places where this is potentially a prospect to happen and where is it not working where are you seeing the strongest opposition to making this happen alaska you guys would say is the 
the shining star. Yeah, Alaska is sort of the proof of concept for this new top four system, right? So you have an all-candidate primary. All voters get to participate. The top four finishers go to the general election. And in the general election, there is an instant runoff. So voters get to rank their candidates, and it ensures a majority winner. Uh, Alaska caught the country's imagination, I would say. And a lot of other states are looking at it to either replicate that system or move in a direction toward it. And so what we're going to see this year, this election year, is there is five states that are pursuing ballot initiatives for a similar type of reform. Where? South Dakota, Idaho, uh, Montana, Colorado, Nevada, and actually Arizona. So six states uh, where you may see this type of reform actually on the ballot. Now, the Alaska system that I mentioned has two components, the nonpartisan primary and then the instant runoff. And also, rank, known as rank also known as ranked choice voting. And ranked choice voting in, in particular has taken on sort of a life of its own in inspiring some backlash. And so there's some opposition to it. Some states have actually moved to ban it. States like so some of the ones that I included in my list uh, earlier. Most recently, the Georgia State Senate just banned it. As it happens, the same ban bill was in Virginia and on a bipartisan vote got knocked down because the Republican Party has used it to nominate its successful governor, Glenn Youngkin, right now. So these issues don't fall neatly on party lines. It's usually the party in power, wherever that is, that has a sort of reflex against it. But short answer is many states are in sort of in the pipeline of pursuing these initiatives. Just 10 seconds. Explain ranked choice. Yeah. Just kind of curious, who here is sort of familiar with ranked choice voting? So you have you know, multiple candidates on your ballot. Instead of only choosing one, you have the option of ranking them. And then it comes the vote tabulation. Uh, if someone wins a majority of first choice votes, that's it. If the election is over, they're the winner. If no one wins a majority of votes and the candidate with the least support is dropped off the ballot and any voters who supported them, their second preference is counted instead. And that's redistributed. And that process repeats until someone has a majority. And the easiest way to think about this is it's just like a runoff, uh, except it happens instantly. So it's sort of faster, a cheaper, better way of holding uh, a more representative election. And keep real fast, the states that aren't working are basically most everywhere else, right? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but yeah, it's it's a challenge. <laughs> is it the places that where the legislature has to do this? Is it much harder in that system than a system where people can do it through initiative? Yes, in short. What's going to be fascinating to watch is the states that try to block the ballot measures. We're starting to see this now with Republicans in some states. I think Arkansas, for example, they see that voters can enact ballot measures in the way that Californians have been doing for decades and decades now. And what they're trying to do is raise the threshold so that a simple majority isn't enough to pass some of these referenda. You have to get two-thirds of the vote and a ballot measure to enact ranked choice or to enact you know, top four or whatever, because they see where the reform is coming and they're trying to make it harder and harder. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to remind everyone that in California, as an independent voter, you can choose to vote as a Democrat. So I wanted to say that because I know you're not from here, so you wouldn't know that. Um, my question was going to be, though, about uh, ranked choice voting, but I think I'll switch it to, to what is your opinion about open source voting? Are you familiar with that and how that works from a infrastructure standpoint? Uh-oh, get that question. <laughs> is it open source voting? Yeah. yeah, no, I'm not it's, sure. It's, 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 it's basically utilizing the technology, more greater security mm-hmm. in the you process. Mean, do you mean uh, actually election systems, open source? Election oh, systems. I thought you meant uh, the primary. No. Yes, yes. Having now just lived through four years of 
repeated accusations about voting systems and vendors and vote rigging. I'm a little PTS at the moment. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we've had an attack. I think that open source is good because you have that, that validation of the, the code and people can look at it and we can build these systems that are open. But at some point, voting systems need to be secure. They need to be something that people can't see into and can't get into, which is really the foundation of my understanding, at least of, of open source code. So, you know, I think it's, I think that 2020 pushed all of that forward, uh, quite heavily. And I think that, you know, right now election officials like myself are concerned that the few election vendors we have in the, in the, uh, election space are kind of leave because there's no money in it and you just get trashed and defamed. So, That's what they don't like about it. They want to keep selling you that system. Right. Right. System. So, and then yeah. on the rent choice voting piece, uh, many think that people of color stand a better chance, particularly women in the rent choice. What do you agree with that? Yeah, there's a great uh, new report out from one of our partners called Fair Vote, which just looks at the impact of ranked choice voting on communities of color and women. And they do find that it is advantageous to these communities, in part because it deals with this issue of vote splitting, right? So if you're a voter looking to elect someone who looks like you, but there are multiple candidates on your ballot, um, that sometimes can dilute the vote and you wind up with not a representative outcome. And so when it was after it was used in New York City, for example, that helped the city council become sort of the most diverse, I think, majority of women council that they've had. So there's good evidence to show it, it can improve that. Yes, sir. I have a two part question. The first one, has there been any in California? We have 40 million people and growing Rhode Island. You've got about a million people. So we've got two senators, U.S. senators for each state. Is there any discussion about increasing the number of senators in a larger state versus I mean, the first part. The okay. second part is I know that there's been reform of the electoral um, counting in response to January 6th. They're trying to come up with new laws to prevent that from being a question in the future. Yeah, you do hear a lot more, especially the the, the nature of the Senate having a rural bias, the, the electoral college. You, you hear the combination of these two things by a lot of Democrats these days to lament what they would call minority rule in this country, in which the, the, the country can be governed by a Senate and a president that does not have a majority of the country's votes. That's a lot harder than what we're talking about today because you have to get a constitutional amendment. And that, that's just a much steeper climb because that, that's the structure of the country. We're talking about state by state largely nominating procedures here. It's just a lot easier, I think. Um, is there anything you guys want to say about the Electoral Count Act or is that? Uh, it did pass. And so I, I think I think we've cleaned up some of the, the gaping holes from 2020, at least I hope so. Uh, but who knows what, what's going to get thrown out to, at the end. Uh, we'll just we're, we're, Election officials are risk managers by nature. And all we do is spend our time trying to figure out what could go wrong and how to have alternative plans so that you have a resilient system. And I can tell you that my colleagues across the country have spent the last four years doing nothing but focusing on 2024 to make sure that uh, that they're ready. And so um, we'll be ready. And the, and the 14th Amendment also, you know, making that making that more explicit. Yes, sir. Yeah, I have a too much democracy question. Yeah. In, in LA County, we have for a lot of our races, nonpartisan top two for our judges and, for example, our district attorney race. One of the problems I see is, for example, in our district attorney race, there are 12 candidates running against an incumbent. Everybody has an opinion about the incumbent, but nobody has any opinions about the 
11 other candidates, if they appear together on a candidate's forum, they might get a minute each. Right. So there's an, and the same thing with judges. If we have in LA County where we have multi, you know, we forget how many we have, like 20 judicial races on the ballot with multiple candidates. So I don't know. Have you ever focused on how you get one of the problems we see then? is people vote according to their occupation or the candidate's name or gender. They don't even have a partisan identification to figure. So do you have any ideas about how, if we do have more democracy, that we could get an informed electorate that can make determinations about the quality of the candidates that we want to have if we do have multiple candidate races? I think that would be a a separate USC conference on the American voter. (laughs) And, uh, that would get closer to the bone, wouldn't it? Uh, the challenges of, of, of the American of the American voter. Uh, not sure we can say all of that out loud, but let's give it a shot if you want, Nick. Um, how much of a burden does the average voter have? And Kim, please jump in here too. Um, isn't some of this, uh, you, you know, the responsibility of a citizenry, which frankly is just not as engaged as they were in an earlier era of uh, public affairs? Well, and I, I think the challenge in, in U.S. elections across the board, not just here in Los Angeles County, is Americans vote on everything. Yeah. And I, I just heard a, a colleague say this, and I thought it was really uh, really telling, that an, a U.S. voter will see more candidates and races on a single general election ballot than a voter in the UK will see in their lifetime. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so you just start there and it's this voting for all of those down ballot races. It's really challenging. In fact, it will be interesting to watch California now that all the, the elections are going to be held in the even year. Um, and the idea is good, but what I know in Washington that we've seen is that the odd year elections have lower turnout because they're nonpartisan. Uh, people don't know you get into judges. No one, unless you happen to know an attorney, knows how to vote on those races because they can't really tell you where they stand on anything. So we see a decreased turnout. And I know a lot of ac- advocates focus on, oh, it, there must be something wrong. You got more people to vote. I think voters are uncomfortable voting when they don't know what they should know. And they would rather not cast a vote and cast in an informed vote. And I think one thing that California and Washington do very well is provide a lot of voter information. And I think across the country, that's where we need another place we could start. You know, why doesn't every state have voter pamphlets? Why, why isn't information available online so people can find out information about candidates? We take it for granted on the West Coast, but as you move East, it's not the same story. And, and voters are the most engaged with the elections that they're least close to. Yeah, well, right? there is a. Because the, the local election, they know the least about, and that's what affects them the most. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, sort of ties into that. And it's a little bit of lecture and form, a little bit of this last guy's uh, question. What do you think about increasing the size of the house? There's nothing magical about 435. Guys, what do you think? I think it's a good example about things that we take for granted today as being, oh, it must always have been like yes, this and always yes, will be. But, yes. you know, for a long time, it wasn't. We, as many of you know, continue to grow the size of the house as the population has grown until sometime in the 1920s or 30s, we said, we can't fit any more chairs in here, so we're going to stop. doesn't make any sense. I think there's lots of good arguments as to why increasing the size of the house can actually increase how representative members are and bring politics a bit closer to the people. I don't know how viable it is. You know, if you talk to the average voter, if you ask them, hey, you want more politicians? <laughs> They're probably not going to respond positively uh, to it. So in theory, yes. Uh, in practice, a bit skeptical. Last question. 
Thank you all for being here. I just wanted to ask how you thought AI and emerging technologies will impact the information ecosystem in the upcoming elections. I specifically was thinking about this because I know like there was like a recent law in Washington state passed about um, or, like legislation last year requiring disclosures on like deep fakes um, in election media. And I was wondering if you think like other states will adopt like similar types of measures. It is top of mind again in the election community. I know that that is uh, the thing we're most concerned about is one for all of you, for all of us as voters. How do you tell the difference? How in the modern era do you know if a picture is legitimate yep, or a video is legitimate or recording? And we all are good, but we're not that good. Um, and so I think the biggest concern besides just voters getting bad information about a candidate or a campaign, it's the our nefarious actors. I know we've heard a couple of speakers mention it uh, today about foreign actors that are really trying to dis- sow discord yeah. and trying to divide us from yeah. within and, and make this country fall from within. And they're doing a pretty great job of it, quite yeah. honestly. China, Russia, Iran in particular. What worries me is now they can do things at scale. that they couldn't do four years ago. Now they can do a DDoS attack on a phone system on election day. I don't want to say those out loud because you're just giving the bad guys ideas. But uh, the same types of things, you you can can have all sorts of uh, things hit right before election day, and how do you undo it? You know, Republicans, you vote on Wednesday because there's so many people we anticipate coming on Tuesday, we don't have enough space. And you know, so with Trump's voice or with some voice that sounds like Trump, right? I mean, it's a brave new world. Uh, speaking of separate USC panels, that's going to have to be a separate future Dornside panel talking about the impact of, of AI on elections. Um, is there anything that you guys want to close with uh, besides plugs for the books? Yeah, I, I will just say just quickly on that topic. I think it also begs the question of like, what is our capacity of our Congress to even grapple with issues like these? Right. The last time totally. uh, several leaders on this issue before Congress, you know, they confused TikTok with Tic Tacs no fewer than three times. So, you know, we're increasingly being governed by a gerontocracy that doesn't understand these issues. And so the challenge, I think, is how do we have a political system where our best and brightest want to run and serve? Yep. And right now our system is sending all the wrong signals that this isn't a uh, vocation for them. And that's what's concerning to me as I think about any major issue you know, confronting the country. That's my uh, pessimism. My optimism is that there's nothing wrong with the way that our democracy is functioning today, that our same democracy does not give us the tools to fix. You know, I experienced that when I 10 years ago ran for Congress as an independent, high barriers to entry, but hey, I can collect 7,500 signatures and get my name on the ballot and start to talk to thousands of people in my district about making this change. Or, hey, 10 years later, to put together an organization and start passing these, helping to pass these ballot initiatives around the country. Yeah. So the most important thing is we just can't lose the agency that we have to do something about this. And the most important thing is then focusing that agency on what is both achievable and what can make a really big difference. And I, I would just remind everyone here, because I have moments where I hear things like that. It just stresses me out. We've been through way worse as a mm-hmm. country. Many times in, in our, our, you know, 240 years plus and we continue to move forward and you know we're always trying to build the more perfect union and we can do it and i am totally confident it's bumpy at times right now i know it feels like the end of the world is going to come in november no matter which side of the aisle you're on I, th- I think both sides feel that way and i think we have to remember that this country is built on political discourse this country is built on different ideas and arguing about them in the public square but doing it with civility. It's not always pretty. It's not always fun, 
But we got to get back to that ability to have a conversation with someone we completely disagree with and know that we're going to make the country better. And I, and, and the reason I have hope is being in a place like this. I see all these bright minds. We're going to be fine. The future is bright in this country. I, I mean that genuinely because all of, I, I look at my kids, they're my kids, my kids are 29 and 32 now. And the way they look at the world is different than I looked at it when I was their age. And that's a good, healthy, positive yeah. thing. So we're going to be fine. Have faith. Country's going to survive and we're going to be better. The glass is half full. On that happy note, let's have a round of applause for our guests and for all of our guests today. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. And have a great day. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.